I uh, decided this morning I'm going to preach from Hebrews, because Hebrews is just an awesome book. But I'm only actually preaching from four verses. I just had us read a lot more, because anytime you can sneak in more Bible, it's always a good thing. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background before we get into it. Uh, Hebrews, as we get into it here, Hebrews, um, it's a tricky letter because it's not really a letter. It is a letter, but it's not a letter. It's, it's genre functions a bit differently, if you know. Hebrews' genre is actually a sermon. It's a sermon that a preacher wrote and sent to a community, and that was intended to be read to the community in a sermonic way. So when I talk through Hebrews, I often say, like, the preacher says this, because you should hear it as if a preacher were telling you these things, and it shapes the way we read the rhetoric, it shapes the way we read the structure, all of that kind of stuff. One other point of note, one of the things you probably noticed as we were reading through chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, is that in your Bible, the, the, the text was put kind of in a funny way. It almost looked like poetry or like a psalm. And that's because chapter 1 is a big collection of passages from the Old Testament. It's as if this preacher began his letter to the Hebrews by going throughout the whole Old Testament and piecing all of this stuff together to make kind of an argument, right? So we're going to get into what that is this morning. But I want to start us off just by rereading the four verses that we're going to give attention to specifically. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's, let's hear God speak to us this morning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is God's word for us. So a couple of weeks ago, I was driving down. I had to take my son. I actually go pick my son up from a track meet. It was down at the Socorro Independent School District, the massive stadium they have right off the 375. And I was driving, and, and it was a huge windstorm. There was wind blowing, and I was on my motorcycle. And preceding the exit, there was a sign that said, Pelicano closed. So exit, whatever the preceding exit was. And I was so glad for that sign. I was glad because it would have been extraordinarily irritating to go past and realized Pelicano was closed and then I have to go all the way down to the 10 and do a big loop and then I would get lost and then I'd have to come back and it would waste 10-15 minutes and I probably would have missed the race. Warning signs are extraordinarily helpful when they're helpful, right? When they say something important to tell us what to do or what not to do. To tell us where to go or where not to go. And the book of Hebrews is full of warning signs. It's got four in particular and this is the first one. So warning signs are good when they're helpful. When they actually warn you about something that's important. I found a few warning signs to kind of kick us off here on our warning sign adventure. A few warning signs that maybe aren't as helpful as, as we might want. The first warning sign, or a warning label, it was, it was for a vanishing fabric marker. You know, one of those fabric markers that you put on your clothes and, and clean stuff off. It said, warning, the vanishing fabric marker should not be used as a writing instrument for signing checks or any legal documents, <laughs> as signatures will fade or completely disappear. Just so you know, 
keeping you up to date here. Another one was for a toilet bowl cleaner. It said, safe to use around pets and children, although it's not recommended that either be permitted to drink from toilet. (laughs) Kids... Pay attention, pay attention. Right, another one was for an iron. It said, caution, do not iron while wearing shirt. Just in case you didn't know that. Another for a blow dryer. This is a Vidal Sassoon blow dryer. Instructions for use. (laughs) Do not use while sleeping. I don't know, I don't know, right? And the last one, my personal favorite, is for a Dremel Multipro rotary tool. It said, this product is not intended for use as a dental drill or in medical applications. Serious personal injury may result. So Chase, our doctor's in the room, just so you know, Dremel Multipro tools, don't use them. So, right, so, so warning signs, and we chuckle, right? Because warning signs are helpful only when they're helpful. Only when they state something to actually direct us on the course that we should go. And so this morning we look at the very first warning sign in the Sermon to the Hebrews. An important one. Because what the preacher has said in chapter 1 leads to something very important, very shocking we might say in chapter 2. Now recall what we saw in chapter 1. In chapter 1, what the preacher attempted and labored to do was demonstrate to you that Jesus is so much greater than the angels. He's so much greater than the angels. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the King. Jesus is to be worshipped. He's not the one who worships like the angels. Jesus is the Creator who always has been and will be not the created. And Jesus is the fount of salvation. So why all of this talk? Why start out a sermon in this way? Well, to put it simply, I would say it's because the community that he's writing to had a bit of a Jesus problem. In particular, they didn't see Jesus in all of his glory. They didn't see Jesus for who he really was. They focused on the sufferings of Jesus and they forgot his eternal nature. They forgot the glorious victory that came after the suffering. So now let's look at how our preacher moves into the next section. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Now therefore, because you know all of this in chapter 1, therefore, which should cause us to use the old adage, if there's a therefore, we have to ask what it's there for. So it's a transitional device. Whereby our preacher moves from this extended tapestry of the doctrine of Christ to, we might say, a new message or a newish message to him. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, that is chapter 1, lest we drift away from it. So check this out. Here's what's going on. The preacher has essentially taken you by the hand in chapter 1. And he's taken you on a guided tour of a forest. He's shown you things. He's pointed everything out. Look at that tree and that waterfall. Look at the beautiful canyon that is there. Look at this psalm and this psalm. Psalm 110, 2 Samuel. Look at the whole Old Testament. Look at its beauty and realize that it is all pointing to Christ. It was all laid out beforehand to bring you to Jesus. All of it points to the beauty of Christ. Now why weave this tapestry together? Why take this journey through the Old Testament? Why focus on the glory of Christ from the very beginning? Because in just a few moments, in just a few moments, 
The preacher is going to grab your hand and take you on another journey. In verse 9, where we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the grace of, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And starting there in verse 9 of chapter 2, we're going to walk the long path to see Jesus in all of his suffering. Why it happened, how it happened, what it's its purpose. But he began before he got to the suffering, before he got to the dirty, nasty mess of the crucifixion, he began with glory. He began by reminding you of the big picture, the entire landscape, so that you can put suffering in its proper context and not get caught up on the pain. So at the end of chapter 1, we have walked through the forest. We have seen the glory of Christ in the Old Testament. And now you can imagine yourself standing atop a peak, seeing Christ in all his glory and splendor, high above all created things, more glorious than even the angels. But now it's time to descend, to go down, to race down the steep hill and see Jesus of Nazareth with dirty feet, suffering, in pain. Now, you're sitting here, and I know, you're saying, hold on, hold on there, preacher. You as an astute listener, you're saying, we're just in verse 1 of chapter 2, and these four verses have really nothing to do with what you've just said. And I think you're right. That's a good observation. Because you see, when we stand at the top of the peak, before we race down into the valley and experience the suffering of Christ, before we get there, he stops for a moment. The preacher to the Hebrews stops for just a moment and points in the distance. And you look your, to your right and you see there... A large, yellow, rectangular sign, and emblazoned on that sign in six big, bold, black letters is the word danger. Danger. There's a cliff ahead. Hold on, he says. He stops for just a moment. Hold on. Therefore, because we know everything of what I just told you, of the glory of Christ, now that you have seen the path and the trees and the forest all pointing to Christ's glory, pay close attention to that before we head down the hill, before we get to the valley of suffering. Pay close attention to what I just told you so that you don't drift away when we get to the pain so that you don't drift away drift away it's actually a tricky word to translate because it's not used very often it carries the idea of like like a ring slipping off your finger at a moment that you least expect it perhaps at the beach or the idea of a ship that you brought it into dock just to run into the house for a moment to gather a belonging that you forgot and you forget to tie it up and it slowly drifts drifts out to sea to be destroyed by the waves he says pay close attention to what we just heard the glory of Christ because what I'm about to tell you will be challenging in a moment the preacher says we will plummet down this hill we will enter the dusty streets of Jerusalem we will see God incarnate 
we will see God in the flesh being caught up in the violence of this sinful world. And when you get to that point, if we don't keep our eyes fixed on the right spot, if we don't remember the glorious tapestry of the Old Testament, which points us to Christ, which gives us a God's eye view of the Son of God and His suffering, then we can get caught up in the pain and we can ask the question, is it even worth it? Is faith even worth it when we get caught in the moment of pain? When we see the world and all its suffering. Listen, it doesn't take a genius to convince you that there's pain in this world. It doesn't take a genius. You walk down any street and see impoverished kids in both urban and rural America and you'll see pain worn on the sleeve. Kids who are hungry, men and women, boys and girls sleeping on cardboard mattresses. They find drugs on the corner. Why often? Because it's the only economy that works and then the addictive substances take over the minds and hearts of the oppressed. You'll find kids without fathers, homes without heating, cupboards without food. But, but don't fool yourself. That's not the only place where pain, the pain of this violent world is found. It's not. Walk the streets of a suburban and relatively wealthy or wealthy community. The pain is there. It's just often hidden behind the walls. Once the curtain closes, you'll have broken marriages. you have kids that are ignored and placed in front of substitute parents, which are rectangular and glass. You have addictive substances that keep the focus off of the pain. Divorce rates and suicide rates in in suburban America should be more than enough evidence to show you that pain is present everywhere. That evil hits us hard. That sin has dug its fingers into every socioeconomic class of America question is whether it's inside or outside, to what degree it is, right? And kids are not immune to this either, are they? Kids, when you get left out at school and you feel like you don't matter, right? Or you see your parents fight, or you feel the pain of loss when you lose a grandparent, or a parent, or a sibling, or even if you've been ghosted by friends before, right? It hurts, and you feel the effect of loneliness and sin. Anyone who has ever graced the halls of a nursing home, an emergency room, or a funeral home, anyone who has ever sat beside a grave site or pled with their wayward child knows that humanity is full of pain and hurt and suffering. In fact, it's all over this room. We all carry with us little buckets of pain that we lug around with us everywhere we go, effects of the past, of hurt, of loss. So what happens when you know this difficulty in a very real way, when you experience it? You experience it, and you're directed to a suffering Savior as an answer. What happens when you see the God-man and you think, it's great that he took on human nature, but isn't it that precise human nature that got him killed? Maybe if he didn't do that, he wouldn't have been killed. What makes his humanity any better than ours? What makes his suffering any different than mine? Why does his bring about an answer, but mine doesn't? It's a good question. 
It's a challenging one. If you think about it, think about experiencing the message of Jesus, the suffering servant, for the very first time. As one scholar puts it, if looked at from a limited perspective, if we look at the cross from a limited perspective, his cross seems to be just another moment of torture in a long line of crosses dragged up an endless chain of Calvaries. The story of his life of suffering sounds like just one more chapter in the sad, unending narrative of human oppression. In the broken, pain-soaked march of human history, the death of Jesus is plain to see and frankly, not all that unusual. Innocent people suffer and die all the time. That's what we could see. If our perspective is limited and we wonder, is it worth it? What's the purpose of Christ's sacrifice? Why follow this man who proclaimed salvation and then died? And in a rather embarrassing way. Tortured. Well, I believe knowing this challenge, our preacher points us to the warning sign. Remember the glory of Christ. Remember the enthronement and the resurrection. Pay close attention to what you have heard. Don't only focus on the immediate experience of the pain that you're going through. Acknowledge, yes, it's real. Yes, it's challenging. And yes, life is hard at times. But pay close attention to what you have heard, for it is that message of the glory of Christ and the resurrection and enthronement of Christ that keeps you grounded in the midst of the experiencing experience of suffering. It will keep you anchored when you look at evil in this world and you say, is it really worth it? Is God really in control here? Does he really know what's going on? Can he really fix this big old mess of hurt, of challenge? You see, when you see pain and evil, pay attention to what you hear. What you hear is the victory of Jesus. What you hear is the resurrection and exaltation. What you hear is that death will not have the last word. That your pain... And the pains in life will not have the last word. And so with that reminder, with that very brief reminder to stop and pay attention to what we have heard rather than what we always see and experience, we suddenly change scenes. We're no longer looking at a warning sign, no longer perched atop a hill with the preacher pointing to a danger sign to stay firm when we confront the scandal of the cross. We now find ourselves in the courtroom, in the courtroom, in the seat of a plaintiff, the community that this preacher is writing to. We might say they've examined the cross, the scandal of sacrifice, and they've they found it wanting, lacking, perhaps not worth following. Perhaps it would be better to go some, back to something a little bit more experiential, like the Levitical sacrifices. At least there we could smell the animals. We could see the death. We could watch them walk up the steps to the temple and we could know in a very visceral way that God is addressing pain and sin and evil. Perhaps that would be easier than just paying attention to Jesus who died back then, a while ago. 
And so the preacher pulls out all of his legal language. It's quite interesting here. He says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and it's, it's technical language, right? It's, it's language of Greco-Roman law court stuff. So basically what he's essentially saying here is that this word, or this word reliable indicates here that he's saying what was declared is legally binding. And we know that because the message that was declared by angels, thats he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant, right? The Mosaic Covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai with Moses, because that was legally binding, it had obligations. And if those obligations were not met, it would result in punishment according to the covenant. How do we know this? Well, it's in verse 2, the second part. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So our lawyer kind of, he now points to the evidence, we might say. He pulls out his easel and he traces the Old Testament history of Israel. And he shows us that when Israel broke the covenant, when they broke the law, that is sins of commission, they did something wrong, they transgressed the covenant, or they disobeyed. They didn't follow what they were supposed to follow. They, they disobeyed the covenant, that is sins of omission. When they did that, what happened, he asked. What happened? And we think about it for just a moment, and what we respond, they, they were punished. They were punished and eventually they were exiled, kicked out of the land, to which our preaching lawyer says, bingo, that's precisely right, as he struts around the courtroom in his dark navy blue suit with a stunning red tie. How then, how then shall we escape if we neglect a much greater salvation? If Israel's covenant was binding and had punishments for being outside the covenant, how much more then shall we escape if we neglect a much greater covenant? That's the basic how much more argument, right? If the covenant before, the Mosaic covenant with Israel, led to punishments and it was legally binding, what about this one? This new covenant. What do you expect to happen if you ignore the warning signs and you neglect the covenant and you run away from Christ? What do you expect to happen if you leave this one? Well, we might ask, how do we know this new covenant with Jesus is legally binding as well? Like the Mosaic covenant. How do we know that? To which our preaching lawyer calls three testimonies to the witness stand. First, he says, it was declared at first by the Lord Jesus himself. In other words, Jesus said it was legally binding. This blood is a new, this covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. That's evidence number one. Well, witness number two, evidence number two is that those who heard it attested it to us. The apostles who walked and talked with Jesus, who saw him no longer in the tomb. Well, they tell us that it's a legally binding covenant. And the third evidence that he brings into the witness stand is that it was attended by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The many things God has done to corroborate this act, this event of Jesus coming, dying, and rising. 
the signs of the apostolic age, the gifts that he's given to you, the gift of the Holy Spirit. These three testimonies, he says, all bear witness to one fact, that this new covenant is binding and legally true. And so as our jury waits for the final verdict, as we sit on the edge of our seats with bated breath, waiting for this preaching lawyer to make his final case, he goes on with that last nail that will close the deal, seal the argument. He says, if you know from Israel's history that the covenant declared by angels was binding... And it led to punishment when they disobeyed its legal stipulations. And if Jesus is much greater than the angels, and he instituted a new covenant, evidenced by his word, the testimony of the apostles, and signs and miracles and wonders, wouldn't it follow then that leaving this Savior, Christ, would have dire consequences? just as leaving the Mosaic Covenant did for Israel. And he asks you to let that sink in for just a moment. Wouldn't it follow that leaving the Christ would be much worse, would have dire consequences, much greater consequences than Israel did being exiled from the land? What's the point of all this, you ask? What's the point of all this? I think the point is sometimes when we go through life, when we experience life in its real, raw, and painful forms, we can question God. And we can wonder, is this thing called faith even worth it? And I think we all go through those times of life, And these Christians here, to which the writer to the Hebrews is writing, I think they were looking at the challenges of life, the realities of being a Christian in the Roman Empire, where you weren't particularly liked, and saying, I wonder if this is all worth it. I wonder if God has really answered the problems of injustice and sin through a suffering Savior. I mean, I don't get how that works, right? God really deal with this? I mean, he said in all the prophets that he would come down and he would answer the problem of pain and evil and sin, and then he answers it with Jesus dying. To which the preacher says, that's the answer. The answer is not to look for something more concrete, perhaps a return to the Levitical sacrifice. The answer, he says, is to look at the warning signs, to acknowledge, right, that it might be difficult to look to a suffering Savior and in that see the answer, but to realize first that it didn't end in suffering, that it ended in the glory of Christ the resurrection from the dead, to level with the fact that God chose to deal with pain and evil in this world by sending his son to die and be consumed by evil in humanity is hard. But to leave now has dire consequences. Because the new covenant, which was instituted by Christ, based on what Christ has done, is much greater than that of old. 
Because in that new covenant, God himself took the punishment. He paid the penalty for the sins that we have, that we do. All of the injustice and the sin and the evil that we perpetuate in this world, God took it upon his own shoulders. And he took it to the cross. And he bore the brunt, the wrath, the punishment to say, it's finished. It's finished. He took our sins so that he can give to you then the gift of righteousness. And that covenant is so much greater. You see, when Israel left the Mosaic Covenant, when they broke it, they received the punishment of that covenant, which was exile from the land, separation from the holiness of God there in the land. The problem is, that was all a sign. It was all pointing to the reality that every single one of us are unable to follow God's covenant in any kind of perfect way. We're all sinners. Yeah, we like to look down on other people and point out their sins at time. But the reality is none of us can maintain the covenant standards as we're called to. And the beauty of this new covenant is that Christ obeyed it for us. That Christ took the punishment for us and through his sacrifice paid the penalty we deserve. You see, the preacher to the Hebrews is is looking at you and talking to you when you deal with pain, when you deal with suffering, when you deal with heartache, and you see the effects of this fallen world, and you feel them in the gut. He says, "I I know you want a quick answer to pain and evil to suffering. I know you want a quick answer to that. I know you question God when you see suffering, when... And you look, and his answer is a suffering savior. But bear with me, he says. Hear me out as you listen to his sermon as he develops for the next 12 chapters where he explains how that all works. How Christ did not stay in the tomb. He didn't remain the suffering one. But he ended as the glorious one, the victorious one. But in the meantime, in the meantime, while you experience this world and you hurt, you hurt, don't fall away. But instead, anchor yourself. Anchor yourself. Don't give up on Christ because the consequences of being outside of this covenant are far worse than the consequences of Israel disobeying the Mosaic covenant. Stay anchored to him. To what you hear when you are confronted with what you see. What a profound and profoundly applicable message for today. You see, we look around us and we often see pressure. We see the suffering that the world produces. We question God at times. And we wonder if Christ has the answer. When we're honest with ourselves, when we look down into the deep recesses of the soul, as the psalmist often did, where he says, why God? I don't get it. I don't get it, God. I trust you, but I don't get it. Sometimes we see maybe theoretical or academic challenges and we wonder if Jesus is really the way. Maybe this is just one religion amongst a bunch of other ones. Perhaps we got this wrong. Or we see the pressure to fit in, to succeed. And we wonder sometimes if this whole Christ business is just getting in the way of that. It would be much easier, perhaps, if I wasn't labeled a Christian. 
If I could go to those places, those parties, those things, do this and do the other. Wouldn't it be easier sometimes to just ditch this thing called faith, we think? If I'm accepted, if I'm successful, then maybe I won't feel the pain that I experience now. And we all, I think, have these challenges at different points in our life. Sometimes it's most acute amongst you kids, right? As you grow up, as you grow up and you see the world from a much bigger perspective, college students especially, when you grow up questioning sometimes, maybe my parents weren't right about all of that. The world is so big now, now that I have grown and seen things that I never before imagined as a child. Now that I see pain and evil and suffering. Is this suffering Savior, this Christ on the cross, is he worth it? Well, to you, the preacher says, don't give up. Don't give up. Warning. I get that seeing suffering makes, can cause us to fall away. But he says, don't do it because this is a legally binding covenant. You must, you must remain safe within it. Because the consequences are so much worse if you don't. Keep going. Bring those doubts and those questions to Christ. Don't ignore them or stuff them down. But be honest and come to the suffering servant. Come to the suffering savior. And see the whole picture. The glory and the victory of Jesus. That comes after the suffering. But challenges to our faith don't really just end in the childhood stage, do they? We grow older. Adults, maybe you've lived life in the faith for a while and sometimes you might wonder, is it even worth it? Perhaps you've gone through a divorce or lost your parents or lost a child and you've shed tears and you've felt hurt. Sometimes we wonder, is Jesus really the answer to this pain that I feel? As we grow older, we realize that our problems are much greater than we ever imagined as a child. When we were children, the world was so big, right? Everything was adventure. Everything was looking up. But now it's just painful. Now it's hard. It's difficult. Well, to you, the preacher says, keep going. Keep going and keep walking the long and narrow path with Jesus. Because when you do, you will find glory. You will see the answer. You will see the victory of Christ. The new covenant is so much greater. So pay close attention to what you heard. That Jesus is so much greater than the angels. And that he did not stay in the tomb. Pay close attention to that so that you do not fall away, so that you don't drift away as an unanchored ship when the winds of life come and slowly move you away. And so this morning, as we've taken a moment out of our week to pause and reflect on God and be with God and to hear from Him, ask yourself the question, have you anchored your life? Or did you forget when you jumped out the boat? Because if you did, you better run back and anchor that boat to the dock. Anchor it. Are you firm in your confession of Christ in all his glory? Because that anchoring is the thing that will keep you secure when the winds of life come. And you look at Christ and you see a suffering servant and you wonder if he can offer what you need. 
It's the confession of the glory of Christ that keeps us anchored when we see the suffering of Christ and the suffering of this world. Warning, the preacher says. It's hard. Pain is hard. Don't neglect your salvation. When what you see is pain, what you see is difficulty, what you see is fear, pay close attention to what you heard. That Christ is the new covenant in his blood. A legal and binding covenant who has wrapped up your sins, wrapped up your just punishment, suffered and died and dehydrated on a beam while he choked to death on his own fluids and bore the wrath of God. Bore the wrath of God so that he could fix your status before God. So that he could bring you to him and say, this is my beloved child. He chose to confront evil. To save you, he chose to confront evil, to confront pain, to confront sin and injustice head on. But, and this is the most important point, but he was raised in glory. He was raised in glory. He was vindicated. He conquered the evil. And now, as we know, That the pain we experience will not have the last word as we know it in our hearts or in our minds. As we know it and we confess it. But we wait. We wait patiently with hope. We wait for him to return. To finish the job. Let's pray together. God, you are good. You are so good. And we are so thankful that you have given us the great privilege to gather here in this space and to be with you. Lord, we thank you that you have promised to us that you are here with us. Your Holy Spirit is here among us as we are gathered to reflect upon you. And so we pray that our lives will be lives of glory, glorification of of the one true God. God, we pray for each and every person who is sitting in this room who has suffered pain, who has dealt with heartache and hurt. Lord, we pray that you will remind them of the glory of Jesus. Remind them that their pain will not have the last word. Lord, we pray for everyone in this room who has struggled with questions and doubts about their faith. Lord, we pray that they will bring them to you and they will lay them at the foot of the cross and that you, Lord, will strengthen them and anchor them firmly to the confession of you and your resurrection. God, we pray for each person in this room as they live out the Christian walk, as they walk along this long path and their feet are tired, we pray that you will lift them up as upon the wings of eagles. Strengthen our faith, God. Build it where it is lacking and help us to trust you more. Help us to move, move, Lord, through this world glorifying you. And so be with us and let the word of God seep deep into our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the great and resurrected King of heaven and earth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.